in the mental health field too often. We've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Welcome back, everybody, to It's Not, it's Not Just In Your Head. Uh, I am Max Golding, and we have here... Hi, Harriet Fraud, and I'm Harriet. here too. Yeah, and um, today we have an awesome guest named Asad Haider, who is the founding editor of Viewpoint Magazine. He's the author of Mistaken Identity, and his writing can be found in The Baffler, N Plus One, The Point, Salon, and elsewhere. And um, just as a, a brief lead-in, oh, actually, before I forget, patrons. Thank you very much for Swinter, Sarah Turner, Rebecca Johns, Justin Harper, and of course, Liam for help with editing and social media. Um, all done. Um, so like, why did we invite Asad Haider? I guess like from my view and Harriet, you could chime in or, or Asad, yeah. you can just pop, like kind of pop in whenever um, I'm done rambling. Um, you know, so our podcast is about mental health, sort of, but it's about how like how capitalism works and like impacts mental health. And we often are deconstructing the concept of mental health and trying to like untangle it from this individualistic, uh, what we think is like a very false and actually dangerous and, and like bad way of thinking about mental health as like these, these like this like individual thing that people experience. Um, and so Assad's work, which um, from the writing of his book, Mistaken Identity has like, he's written about a lot of other things, but like this kind of central piece there is, um, from my understanding, I, I read it years ago. It, it's like, it's sort of about identity politics, sort mm -hmm. of, and sort of the history of where identity politics came from. Um, and, and also like class politics and, and sort of like black Marxist uh, tradition. And it's about a lot of different things. But um, I, I guess to me, when I, when I think about like um, mental health as as it's understood in like the broader conversations in society now, I'm starting to see, I think, some overlap between, um, I guess, sort of liberal identity politics and mental health discourse, which maybe we can get into in a bit. We don't have to like super get into it right now. But so I, I actually think that his work is, uh, does sort of intersect into like mental health um, uh, stuff. In I ways that so let's, too. and we'll see, we'll see if that, if we make those connections or not, but yeah, go ahead, Harriet. I really agree with that because I think part of what your mental health is depends on how you identify yourself and to whittle down your identity to one aspect of you that was determined by and for racial exploitation is a problem. Also, it's a problem to have an identity that separates you out from the rest of humanity and the rest of the people with whom you have to make alliances in order to win what you need. And so I think that Assad's analysis, his book, Mistaken Identity, and his ideas are absolutely crucial to unifying the movement that we need to win some kind of justice and socialism in the United States. Because if everybody identifies only as black or Puerto Rican lesbian or whatever else, without seeing that we need alliances in order to win whatever we need, we'll lose and we'll continue to lose. And identity politics has been part and parcel of our losing. So I really welcome a chance to talk with Assad and have him ex explain more of what he thinks because it's, very important. Yeah, I mean, I guess without just asking you a bunch of questions about the book, I mean, we could do that. But like, um, I mean, I guess, I mean, do you see like that, any of those kind of connections with like that discourse on sort of identity and the way that people are talking about mental health these, these days at all? Like, do you see that? It's interesting to look back and think about what this book was about and why I wrote it or what I thought or was expressing because you know, uh, being an author, it's there's something about it which is also a little bit like identity in the sense that, you know, you don't completely determine the meaning of the things you say, just like you don't really completely determine who you are. Uh, that's not something that is just a product of your volition. And it's not one thing either. It's always something complex. And so 
at a certain level, uh, the book escapes you and goes and does other things, and then you go other places too. So uh, I think that's actually an important part of what is behind the book. Uh, and I mean, here you were talking about identity being understood in terms of just one thing, one attribute you have, an attribute that actually has been assigned to you by a historical process and that uh, plays a political role. Um, is that enough to say who you are? Is that, is, and, and is the question of who you are enough um, to base a politics on? Uh, and I think we, you know, it's important for us, and I, I, it will be interesting to hear how you think this plays into, for example, well, broadly mental health, and for example, specifically, um, like a, a clinical encounter and, and what, what the result is of treatment and so on. I mean, is it about um, coming up with a unitary and solid identity? Is it about taking on a different relationship with your identity. I think that it's important from my perspective that we have um, a critical relationship with our identities and that we don't um, have some kind of certainty about who we are, but are able to um, put that into question and to situate it in the world, uh, in a world with others. And uh, that's maybe, uh, these, these are abstract points, but they are very important to me in thinking about these questions? Well, I think yeah. that one of the things that your fine work brings up is that we can have an identity as political activists engage in changing our world, who come from a particular family, a particular culture, a particular, we speak a particular language, and we're part of a particular gender and ethnicity. But a dominant identification is we are together in wanting change, that we are agents of change. And I think that that identity is a much more flexible one. I remember once being at City College and there was a banner across the dining room said Puerto Rican lesbians unite. And I was thinking, whoa, if that's all who unites, you're going to lose whatever th you're trying to do. If you want to meet together, talk out what makes you uniquely Puerto Rican kind of lesbians or how lesbians are treated in the society, that's fine. But the understanding that you won't get any of what you want unless you're in a larger group and that we need to connect is crucial. And I think that one of the things that you do, Assad, very successfully, is show that the identity of one race or another was, just, was an obvious tool to divide a working class against the planter class and the owner class in Virginia. And I'm very aware that that same ploy was used in the 1970s when the FBI and CIA launched the Great Wurlitzer Operation to make sure that they could contain the mass civil rights movement as a black power movement, race only, and the mass women's liberation movement, which had class awareness as a huge component initially, as a gender only movement, because that prevents either side from winning much and it prevents the basic class transformation that Americans need. So I think those things fit very well together, that use of identity politics as a wedge to drive people apart so we can't all share in mass benefits. That, that's wonderful as a part of what you do. And so I think for our listeners, if you could describe a little bit more about the nitty gritty of how that was done and why it would be really exciting to hear. Well, I want to pick up on one point, which is about, um, let's say, something about unity, which is that, you know, as, as you pointed out, we all have differences, and we all have actually a kind of, um, we, we have infinite differences, really, from each other. And any time that you set up 
uh, an identity group, you're essentially that's a, that's about sameness, really. That's about saying this group we're we all have the we're all the same based on this one attribute that we have out of infinite attributes, and all of these other attributes are going to be different. And we're going to like construct a sameness out of this and then draw a boundary around ourselves. And um, so you, you, you lose this basic recognition that, okay, we're all different. That's, the, that's just a condition of being humans. And that's an important thing to recognize because sometimes the response to identity politics will be that well, underlying it all, we have the same interests and we have the same human nature and we have the same et cetera, et cetera. So all of this identity stuff is divisive and so on. But I think that that actually misses the, um, first of all, the recognition that really we have infinite differences. And then second, what unity really is, because I don't think the unity is something that just exists uh, as a, as an expression of our human nature or something like that. Unity exists when we uh, come together around a political project and when we come together and say that um, this world is unacceptable and that we want to fight for another one. And that is a kind of unity that, that doesn't change the fact that we're all different. We may have, you know, in fact, it, it assumes it, it assumes that all people who are different in so many ways are capable of coming together and saying that we want the freedom and equality of everyone. And that is the kind of unity that um, I advocate and that I think is essential. Um, as to the other point, um, of course, in, the, in Mistaken Identity, I have a chapter going through um, basically how race was invented. In um, the in the specific context of the United States and in the specific um, uh, uh, processes of um, uh, plantation slavery and the production of commodities, and the you know one of the important things about that, which and it's kind of uh, it, sometimes it seems like this is in the background and, and you can miss this point, but this is a very important point, which is that the reason that we have to look at that history is so that we don't, is, is to refute the idea that race is just something that's always been there. And it's just part of what human beings are. Because, you know, it's, it's no longer common that people believe that uh, there are biological uh, hierarchies between people, you know, I mean, some people believe this, you know, you have the bell curve kind of stuff, the IQ stuff, people do still, you know, Andrew Sullivan's like talking about race science as though this was the 19th century. And um, so you have that, that but I, most people don't think that, most people don't think in those terms. But nevertheless, there's still, I call it racial ideology in the book, there's still this idea that race is an attribute of a person and that we can identify different groups of human beings that share this attribute and that those are races and that maybe all the different races are equal maybe one race isn't better than the other but the underlying assumption is that there are races and the reality is human variation does not allow us to make these you know richard lewinton refuted this long ago and human variation doesn't allow us to say that uh, people already are divided into racial groups. So that's something that is historically produced. And it's something that it's very hard to come up with some kind of general theory about it. A lot of people try to do that. And I don't think that that's quite right because is, you know, are the concepts um, that, uh, and the categories that people are classified with in the Spanish Inquisition uh, the same as the ones that are happening in colonial slavery. You know, I mean, I think that there are, these are different his, histories and we have to understand them in their particularities. And so when in the United States, we're talking about a process in which race is invented um, and race is invented because um, there was a need to 
for for uh, the owners of plantations and for um, the, the the people who are profiting off of forced labor, they uh, had to find ways of disciplining a labor force and of continuing the flow of laborers um, and uh, differentiating between the um, laborers that had voluntarily migrated from Europe and the ones who had been forced to come from Africa was, and they did this, you know, legally, and it was a, it didn't happen all at once, you know, that there wasn't this differentiation at the beginning, that it was, it was developed over the course of the, uh, of many years um, through laws. And so that was constructed, that was, that was, uh, these categories were produced and they came out of this um, uh, set of social relations that were based on exploitation. And so that's another point that's important that, you know, it's, if once we recognize that race isn't just a part of human beings and it's not just something that already exists, the next thing that we have, the next step conceptually is, is that we kind of have to keep reversing our common sense assumptions. Is that it's not true that people are oppressed because of their race. This was point was uh, made very well by Oliver Cox, and I don't really go into him in the book, but you know, you can find he had a book called Caste, Class, and Race, which is massive. But if you you can just I, you, it's, on, it's for free online. You can find it and you can just read the part on race. And um, he pointed out, look, it's not that people are oppressed because of their race. When people are oppressed for all kinds of different, due to all kinds of different processes, and he identified capitalism, because he said, you know, the, the reality of world history is that uh, Europe develops um, capitalism, it develops this military power, and then it comes to dominate the rest of the world. It's not because of something about Europeans and they don't dominate other, uh, other uh, societies because there's something weaker about those other societies. This is a historical accident and it results in a situation of domination. And that once you have this relation between the dominator and the dominated, then the idea comes about that, okay, this this is the case because there are uh, there are natural hierarchies because these people are not capable of governing themselves and so on because of their race and we can now identify all kinds of characteristics they have that allow us to make this claim and uh, so it, it's not that people are oppressed because of their race it's that people are classified as being in a race because they are oppressed mm -hmm. and so that that we have to turn that reasoning around it's very important because otherwise we're reproducing all of these essentially racist ideas yeah. that races already exist yeah it's a very very important thing because and one of the things that you mentioned in your interview with the intercept which i had also read about previously was how in the 13th century when britain wanted slave labor out of Ireland, they decided that the Irish were white chimpanzees and were an inferior breed, and so it was perfectly reasonable to enslave them. That you can create a race out of people who look just like you. I mean, it's a creation of a, an inferior people for the purpose of super exploitation of them. And that's a very important part of our discourse on race, because in the US now, in order to avoid class, they allow some discussions of race and gender and try to shift the conversation onto those two aspects of our society and avoid class and don't look at this class exploitation as the reasons for these differentiations. Exploitation of women in the home and free household labor and emotional labor and childcare and of people from Africa as slaves in production of tobacco and cotton and so on. That we have to see these as human creations attached 
to, to differences that are insignificant in and of themselves. And yet know that people who have been oppressed can share oppression and people who have been treated in a way as if they were less good can share the feelings of rejection and sadness around that, even though that doesn't really define their identity. I think of it sort of like snowflakes. Everyone is unique, but they're all snow, you know? <laughs> We're all people. So I almost want to take a counterpoint, even though I'm like <laughs> the like the the sort of you're a class reductionist thing people say to each other probably applies to me a lot at this point. But I want to actually take a counterpoint to this and say like, okay, so here's an example. A couple nights ago, I was um, hanging out with a fellow therapist friend who is a Latina, uh, Mexican, uh, speaks Spanish. And um, we were just talking about like clients and, you know, she mentioned we were with somebody else and she explained like, yeah, I mostly work with like Spanish speaking, you know, like immigrant uh, people and stuff. And, um, and I asked her just out of curiosity, like how many Latinos in like Southern California that want to see a therapist and only speak Spanish, like how many do you think would prefer to speak to like another Latino person who speaks Spanish versus like if there say was like a white therapist that was fluent in Spanish, but they weren't Latino. Like do, how much do you think like the average Latino like really cares? And she was like, I, my guess is like 80 to 90% would definitely prefer to sort of culturally match with somebody um, and for it not to just be like the language thing. Um, and I was like, yeah, that's interesting. That totally makes sense. And like, I've looked at research on what we call like ethnic matching in like the therapy and counseling world where there is, um, if I'm remembering correctly, if there's any like super brainy listeners that are like, that's, that's wrong, I'll show you counter research. The research I remember is that ethnic matching does actually sort of accelerate trust like that there is more trust out the gate between people. Um, but over time, like if you're not matched with someone of the same ethnicity or maybe other sort of quote unquote identity identifier, whatever, uh, that eventually you can build the same amount of trust. It's just like, if you, if you like stick around or whatever, right. But like out the gate mat matching on that front does create more trust. And so I guess like we, we're talking very like macro and historical. And I guess something that I find frustrating and, and just, um, challenging often is that so many people really are starting from that ma the micro point of like I am blank right like there um, that the, the author I mentioned I saw it before um, Beverly Totem she wrote why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria her whole thing is trying to get people to understand that they're what we call racial identity development which I think now is almost like a reifying problem on some level for us to talk about it too much but that there's, if you just say like you get your average white kid, your average black kid growing up in America, that there are certain sort of developmental stages as she argues. And I guess there's some, you know, sort of social science research on this, that there are certain cultural messages that you receive at different stages of your life where you are told, for example, like an average thing for white kids is that whiteness isn't really like a thing you're told you have. You're just sort of told you're like a person and you can just grow up and like be this person or whatever. But like, if you're black, there's like the, several different points in your life at which it's like you're black and so this you're black and so that or you're black and so not this or not that right and so on that micro level that there's these sort of like points of your quote-unquote identity that are forming where your sense of self is actually being shaped by I think all the things we're talking about on the macro level where like there's all these historical and political economic forces that that explain why the micro piece is what it is um, but since so many people start at the micro point, um, it's not like people are unwilling to take a deeper dive into the history and the broader forces that, you know, reinforce this whole problem. But it's harder to get to where, where we are talking about this than if people are starting from like, well, as a woman, X, Y, Z, as a black man, X, Y, Z. And that so often I, I just, I feel like, and I'll, I'll shut up in a second, but that there's, there's these, um, how, do, how do I say it? There seems to be this, some sort of reinforcing effect and I don't know exactly what it is or where it's coming from, but for people to stop at the micro level and just say like, this is who I am, this is reality. And that sort of like standpoint epistemology, like lived experience thing now where like, that's basically all there is. Like you start there, you stop there and there's really no good reason to talk about the history or the economic structure 
because like I am who I am, you know? Um, I don't know if I need to position this as a question. <laughs> Asad, what do you think? <laughs> One interesting point is that you said that, you know, with if there is ethnic difference, it can still over time be overcome and a good relationship can form. I would imagine that the converse also happens, which would be that there may be some kind of um, ethnic identification, but over time it turns out that there are major differences that are not um, productive for that clinical experience. And I think that that can, we can look at that more generally and say that, you know, when you bring people into a group because of one attribute, it could be that there are other really profound and important differences that are kind of being swept under the rug and that then you don't adequately deal with them because this is such a powerful way of people identifying with each other. And you see that, and you see that constantly. I mean, you, you see that um, in all kinds of um, uh, the, uh, sectarianism of, of ethnicity and religion. Um, you know, you can see that uh, in terms of the way that, uh, let's say, um, uh, gender hierarchies are kind of uh, rationalized as being part of some culture as though, you know, um, as, as, as though we can't, as, as though everybody in one culture thought the same thing, mm. you know? I mean, so that, that, that way of um, turning this kind of identification into the center, uh, I think that can pose problems. It's and huge. yeah, yeah. I think it poses huge problems. But also it appeals to people's sense in the United States of needing to belong to something because we feel so isolated. And then it presents a definition often used for our exploitation and oppression, but it gives us membership in a group. What certainly cures that for me as a woman and a founding mother of women's liberation is seeing people like Margaret Thatcher, who immiserated women all over England, and also people like Sarah Palin, who lives out a, you know, posits some kind of stereotype, but who is, who stands for denying women of the social benefits that would allow us to live properly. And so that the more politically sophisticated you get, the more you see the contradictions between someone whose gender or race or ethnicity you share and the policies that, that you think would help us. And, and that then collapses. And I think Max's point that initially people feel more comfortable with someone that looks like them or seems to share some membership in a group. But once you get to know someone, you understand the differences that exist between you. And you could really see that in women's liberation organizing. I remember clearly a big women's liberation event in New York City where Gloria Steinem, who was a CIA agent, was saying, we're all women, we're all together. And the head of the welfare mom said, no, we're not all together. You hire me. You're my employer and you discriminate against me and you cheat me. We're not all the same at all. And that caused quite a murmur in the group because she was talking about class exploitation as something that had to be factored in, not just feminine gender. I think that's where like the, I guess this is just emerging for me, but like the, cause if there's a sort of imagined safety, right. And an imagined trust that's just, if it's sort of like mutually hallucinated upon, like I'm black, you're black, I'm brown, you're brown, whatever. And oh, okay, we're together, right? Like we're sort of, we've experienced the same things or we're oppressed the same or whatever. Cause it's like, if you really dug into the details, you might find that there's actually no shared ex or, you know, minimal shared experience. As you said, Assad, where it's like, of all the different variables you could look at, maybe 20% actually overlapped and 80% don't, right? Cause there's way more differences or something. But I guess it, it just occurred to me that because of the fact that it's so much easier to 
Like, so if you think of advertising, right, if you're seeing like a Coca-Cola commercial and you're like, oh, that person looks like me and they're so happy and they're drinking the Coke and you're like, I'm going to buy the Coca-Cola, right? That like psychology has been weaponized against us for like a century. And that once advertisers realize that if you can find how people identify, right, who they see themselves to be and you, you associate products with their identity, then you can make a shit ton of money. But in the same way, I think this, you know, this is where I think it's, uh, I don't, I don't know how obvious it's become to like everyone listening, but identity politics is actually very, they, they are very easily weaponized against working class people in that you can just sort of, um, you can make up uh, similarity and, and, and create a sort of um, a fake trust and safety in that same way you just described Harriet, or you could get, um, you know, we could just list any number of like, I don't know, conservative, like black or Latina, or just, just, you know, people in power in, in very sort of, uh, they're way higher up in the class, on the class ladder or you know, their employers or landlords or something, um, where they themselves and maybe the power structure around us can like use that narrative of like, Oh, look, see, you can trust me. Cause I'm one of these people that that can just be used as a weapon against, uh, those very people just as easily, um, as, as anything else can. But I think, yeah, I guess that's why it seems to me it's even more important for there to be more, I guess, critical conversations around this that don't sound like they're, because the, the dangerous thing I think for us too is, especially in the mental health world now, especially like where there's these terms like microaggressions and, and triggering and safe spaces and and all those those kinds of things, like we're, you know, we have to be kind of careful as to not say like, you're wrong about your lived experience kind of thing, right? Like that's sort of, that's really sensitive these days where mm -hmm. if someone says like this, this, and this, because I'm a woman or cause I'm black or something, especially me as a white guy, if I'm like, well, uh, I don't know if yeah. that's totally true. Like I can't be like, well, it's not true. Like, no, you didn't experience that. Or, or like right. as a, if someone says as a black person, X, Y, Z, and I'm like, well, I actually know like five black people that think the opposite thing. Like I'm, I'm like walking into a minefield. If I say that, even if like, I know I'm factually correct, it like, mm -hmm. it like doesn't matter. Right. Cause because of that point of like, I am who I am and I am, the thing is true because of who I am and all the sort of, I think, institutional reinforcers around that. A couple of things I think that are important here. One, I would say about this environment of um, kind of everyone being very careful what they say. Um, it's always a risk to speak and there's this language of microaggressions and cancel culture and things like that. It's all describing mm -hmm. It's all describing an environment that is very psychologically damaging for everyone involved, including the people who may be making uh, accusations or who may be saying uh, that they uh, are experiencing harm by someone else, because it sets up um, a situation in which at any point anyone can be found guilty of transgressing uh, an unwritten set of rules, a morality that has not been clearly articulated, and that ultimately is just based on whoever is most persuasive or has the most kind of hegemonic role in setting up the culture of that um, uh, group. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you if, if, if there are people in a group, let's say in a political organization, in a social movement, who are afraid to speak up because they think they might say the wrong thing, it doesn't help anybody because we need, you know, people have to be able to contribute new ideas. People have to be able to feel like uh, they're safe with others. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this rhetoric about safe spaces, and certainly it's true that if you have um, racist comments or if people are ignorant, if they're not sensitive to um, uh, other people's experiences, that sets up problems. But it's also when you feel that you might be attacked at any point that that makes an unsafe space. And then there's also the point that, you know, there aren't really any safe spaces and there is a way, there's a sense in which we have to figure out how we can work together to take the risk of, um, of, of working with others and 
working through problems because we can't imagine that we're going to have a pure situation in which you know uh, everybody will um, be everybody will have the total piety and moral rectitude that will not happen everybody has to be able to um, speak and be capable of working through mm. the contradictions and problems that come up I think that that's important and the fact that we don't have that is really hurting everybody even the people who say that we should be doing these things I think ultimately are are going to um, suffer from that I totally agree because there's no if you're gonna have interchange you can't sit in judgment and condemn people because it ruins the whole environment in the group no one wants to be in a group in which there's hostility and judgment and so people will drop out and also people do come from different places i remember um my sister taught american history and she told me that in class she was teaching about race one of the students raised their hand and said well if black people didn't like the way they were treated with white people why did they so many of them have children with those white people and the other people person said, what a stupid racist thing. And she said, no, if you d put people down for their questions, then no one asks a question. And she explained they were raped because men had mm -hmm. the rights to rape slave women. And they took those rights. That's why there's so many light-skinned Americans and not so many light-skinned people who were born in Africa. She said, we have to all understand that people have to feel free to ask a question and make an intervention without being judged in harsh cruelty by the group, which I think is really important. Yeah, there, and I'm gonna, I wanna recommend something which is, uh, you know, there's a, right now, Duke University Press is publishing the selected writings of Stuart Hall. Oh. And um, the one that's coming out right about now, there's one, one is selected writings on Marxism, and the other is selected writings on race and difference. Mm -hmm. And the race and difference collection has an excellent introduction by Paul Gilroy, and he makes note of this one speech by Hall to a group of educators, you know, I think at the high school level. And he says, well, how do you deal with race in the classroom? And he says, one thing that you don't want to do is make people afraid to say things that might be perceived as racist. You actually don't want to do that. Why? Because when people have those thoughts, you don't want them to just stay in the background, stay underground and continue to be there. Uh, they need to come to the surface and then they need to be discussed and they can be challenged. But if people are afraid to say them, then that doesn't happen. If you just, if somebody says something uh, which reveals their ignorance and they're personally attacked instead of having those ideas challenged and debated and worked through then th then you've got a problem <laughs> then then they're good then they're going to stay there well and i think one one like huge sort of miscalculation on i don't know if you want to call it the left or liberals or whatever just the sort of a trend that we all have observed over the last i don't know decade plus well you you know you've written in the you actually wrote in the book and in, in Harriet, you, you've described this from like your days in the movement, like, you know, mm -hmm. in the 60s and 70s, like that trashing term, right? People would trash each other. Yeah. We just have different language to describe, you know, we call it cancel culture now, and now it's in the digital realm and stuff. But I guess I, I think the, the what, I, what I find to be a miscalculation is that I think, um, and I, so I lived in Isla Vista, it's like the college town around UC Santa Barbara for like seven years. And what I kept seeing over and over again was this sort of, I, I think a, people thinking that it's a, a kind of activism um, that they're, that you are engaging in social change to like almost, it's like programming your mind to look for, maybe it was Mark Fisher is the one who in the vampire castle thing he wrote of like the, uh, like, a, um, like in academia, you know, you're, if you're grading papers or you're, or you're looking at your own paper and you're trying to look for like in the sentence, you're like, aha, I found a grammatical error. And you're like, slash that out, gonna let that student know they fucked up and they need to rewrite that paragraph or something, right? It's almost like turning your mind into that, into that mode in social interactions, waiting for the racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, fat phobic, whatever, right? You're looking for, you're almost like on this like threat detection crusade. And then you, you're like, 
actually, that was really problematic. Like, no, 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 that's not the right word. And then others around them being like, having to actually take a side of saying like, yeah, I'm with the person who sort of called out the other person or defending the other. And then it's just this sort of like high conflict, interpersonal eggshell situation that I think like a lot of what I mean by miscalculation is I think there's like a lot of people like right now, probably people who are listening who do that thinking that it's a kind of activism, right? That it's like they're engaging in a, in a social change project. And I guess, you know, to maybe like validate the side of it that, that like maybe is social change is I think the, the good, the good faith, uh, the good faith thing that's happening is like there is a sort of a, an interpersonal, you know, microaggression that is being uh, that I'm observing. And, and I've been sort of taught because there's still in a lot of sort of social justice literature and certain college classes and stuff. They'll say, like, you know, when you see it, say something like disrupt the thing right then and there. Like we can't let these things we can no longer allow this oppression to occur. And so people think they are like you said, Assad, like there hasn't actually been a sort of like consensus on whether this is actually like uh whether we agree that uh, on the morality of this like is this actually moral behavior or not but i think that there has been a sort of hegemonic uh sort of trickle down into a lot of minds of like this is the moral thing to do it's social change and i'm disrupting oppression and that there's maybe maybe there's sort of longer term strategy i don't know if they think this far but it's like eventually there'll be less of these microaggressions the more we call them out and then there'll be like less oppression right like maybe the, that's like my best attempt to say like, yeah, this, this is what makes sense from their perspective. But I think again, like if you, if you zoom out a little bit and you're like, okay, uh, I don't know, all the bigger scale problems, whether it's like climate change or, or whatever, name all the like really big issues. It's like, do we really think that like programming your brain to go into like interpersonal slight uh, threat detection mode is like the best we can do for activism? You know, especially when it creates this like fearful culture where like now, now so many people are like, I don't even know if I should talk anymore. Right. right? Yeah. Well, I do think that one of the things that's a big mistake on the left is to think of us as we are leftists because we're moral police. We're not a religion. We don't believe in absolutes. We have to see people as a continuum and that we need each other in order to get anywhere with political change. And so there has to be an acceptance, not of personal attacks. Personal attacks alienate everyone. And people's righteous religious condemnation is a huge mistake because it doesn't build alliances. And if the left is going to ever have an impact, it can't spend its time condemning each other, but has to build alliances, which doesn't mean allowing people to be called insulting names, but mm -hmm. for someone to say, well, I get your point, but I think that word could be damaging. How could we put it another way or something? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, one of the psychological theories that uh, I think about a lot is a very old one, which is that of Spinoza. And uh, he had this whole analysis of superstition. Why is it, I mean, you're right to compare this to religion. Why are people superstitious? And what is superstition? I mean, we can say it's like people believe in miracles or whatever, but when you get down to it, it's just that people believe things on the basis of obedience rather than on the basis of reason. So if you're thinking that like uh, we have um, a culture in our organization or our university or whatever in which you're supposed to act a certain way, then I'm going to act that way and I'm going to believe that's the right way to act, even though I haven't determined using my, my abilities of rational deliberation to see if that's the right way that we should be going about things. And so this is really like superstition. And, you know, people believe that when they don't have power, uh, when people don't have the power to uh, act and when they're being um, constantly affected by things that are out of their control, then they're liable to be uh, to believe in superstition, and then they're going to have all kinds of these bad affects, these these negative affects of fear and hatred and guilt, and um, those are self perpetuating because when you experience those those bad affects, that th that makes you even more powerless, and it's a cycle that um, uh, is is ultimately 
the it's ultimately going to take you even further from the point where you're able to actually act and change your environment and change what is affecting you and and the only way you can do that actually is by entering into relations with other people that increase your power so the question is are the relations we have with other people increasing our power or decreasing it and making us sad and fearful and making us uh behave in a religious and theocratic manner uh, so that that I think has not lost its relevance, and in some ways we're back in like the the uh, the the world of the of religion in the seventeenth century. It's mm -hmm. really so, important that it's that you escape from the whole idea that politics is morality in the sense as you have the answer and the truth. And people who defer, who don't subscribe to your truth, are enemies. That is a a terrible attitude. Well, it's witch hunting. So something, something that um, it's funny that that term class reductionist or class reductionism that's kind of emerged. Maybe it's been around forever. I just only noticed it maybe in the last five years or something. But um, I mean, I'm seeing this term like class first politics uh, kind of stemming, I think, to try to clear things up a little bit. But what's started to attract me to that is like, you know, I've been super active in um, like a tenants union the last year and have done, you know, some uh, by some measures failed labor organizing, maybe I don't know, just a lot of salting, I guess. Um, but what, what kind of occurred to me in like engaging in that, those sorts of quote unquote class first things, like we're all tenants or we're all workers or we're all whatever, is finding that like in this kind of weird ironic way that um, when I was less focused on, I want to be like an ally to the XYZ people, which is still very popular. Like I'm, I'm with the marginalized and I'm going to support, I'm going to call you out for doing the thing that hurts the other people that I abstractly support or whatever, right? That kind of activism that when you're actually starting from a point of like, so we're all in the same sort of economically exploited class. And then you start looking around at who those people are, like in my apartment building right now, where I'm talking to you guys, like there's a pretty, there's actually a very diverse, you know, from age to ethnicity, to gender, to, you know, whatever um, kinds of jobs that people have um, in, in any given workplace, you know, Jane McAlevey, uh, has this this beautiful way of talking about like the actual work that it takes to get to like a, an actual 90% plus like strike vote, you know, that like most workplaces are cross sections of America. And so you have a lot of ethnic and gender and whatever diversity. I mean, I guess it depends on the, the job, but, but that this question of like, okay, so if you're going to organize from that vantage point, the question is like, how do I talk to just like people that I, that like couldn't possibly already agree with me politically or or couldn't possibly just because we have some um, superficial similarity, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're gonna get along or agree on anything or whatever. Like how do you engage in those conversations? And I think for me it was like, it was transformative in realizing that starting from the identity stuff that I've, I've, I feel I was very much like, I mean, in Docker, the sort of right-wing narrative about universities, I think is sometimes kind of true. Like in university culture that I was in for like seven years and on like a college campus, college town, that I was kind of taught that like, it's all about identity all the time. And especially as a white male, I need to kind of like shut my mouth and like support other people sort of somehow like uplift voices and all that narrative. Um, but that was just totally different from, from now. It's like, okay, how do I have like, normal conversations with like no jargon that doesn't assume we agree on anything. How do I really start listening to people, you know, from a sort of like worker or tenant type of position. And I guess for me, it was like psychologically transformative. I realized like, wait, this whole, that whole way that they kind of taught me doesn't really get you anywhere in that, in that realm. Right. But I mean, cause if from identity, if you're like, okay, we're just, we're just going to organize ourselves as black people or as lesbians or as Puerto Rican lesbians, like you were saying earlier, Harriet, I mean, numbers wise, it's also just very limited, right? Like how, ma how, how many people can you actually get on board from that? Um, you know, like not, not many. I mean, if, maybe if you're in like a city that's like 80% black or something, just, you know, I don't know, go for it. Just do like black organizing or something. But even then, like there is not like ideological conformity among black people mm -hmm. or any group. So 
I guess, yeah, for me, the, the sort of class first, or even to like use the pejorative class reductionist, I almost, sometimes I'm like, yeah, sure, I'm a class, you know, if that's what you want to call me. But for me, it's almost seemed like, like, um, like practically more useful. Um, although I do still recognize, I mean, so many people really are just drawn to, I think, cultural identifiers far, far more than they are, you know, identify with a sort of economic position. So I would acknowledge that, but I guess just in terms of like activism and organizing it, I do, I, I want to say maybe it's not more effective, but it, it feels to me to be more effective these days to, to begin with the class first politics. Well, I think one of the things that's happened is that at least as Americans, class is the most repressed discourse in the United States. It only began to reemerge in 2011 with the Occupy movement that Obama crushed on the same day across the country, but that with the 1%, 99%, which caught on immediately because it was a repressed awareness that class isn't, who is the employer and who it depends on employment, who has the money, who doesn't, who makes the decisions, who pays to change your mind about decisions is very relevant. And so I think, mm -hmm. The other things like gender and race and ethnicity come to mind because they're much less repressed in our culture. And that's something that we have to, we have to understand and we have to accept that mm -hmm. people's identification as people who need wages to live versus people who don't or whose wages are so exorbitant that you know, they're like the 500 billionaires in the United States that became billionaires during the pandemic when 60% of people were unemployed at some point and faced immiseration. That, that identification has been repressed and so we have to reintroduce it mm. and embrace everyone. And a great example of that was during the hearings of the McCarthy Commission the House Un-American Activities Committee, which was the red-baiting arm after World War II, they brought um, the woman who was the head of Women's Strike for Peace up before the House of Un-American Activities Committee, and they said, do you know that you've had known communists join your organization of Women's Strike for Peace? And the woman played the feminine stereotype so well, she said, well, I hope we did. I didn't know, but I'd be so glad because we want everybody to want peace. And everything that they accused her of, she rebutted by saying, well, we need all sorts. We love to include everybody. And she really articulated an attitude I think we all have to have. And I remember when I was in the beginning of women's liberation, when everybody wanted to, came to the meetings, I said that we should have only one rule. And I still believe it's the one rule you have to have, which is everyone is welcome, except people who know just how we should behave and just what we have to do. They can't be here. Otherwise, all people are welcome to the discussion, which I think is very important that those with the answers who can condemn have to be stopped. We're all in it together and we need to give each other some space. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. I, I, I think the issue, that this issue about the way that class is repressed um, in American politics and American public opinion, that's very important and one thing we can ask is why is that the case? And I think you know there are a lot of reasons, and it, all, it goes back to this question that was posed by sociologists and historians: Why is there no socialism in the United States? And there are a lot of different reasons we can get into about what makes the United States so different from Europe in this regard. Um, one thing is race. One thing is the fact that um, the 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 central role of slavery in the country, the role of migration. Um, I mean, you know, that there, there are all kinds of 
ways that that affected the the possibilities of a labor movement. You know, Dudley V. Du Bois in Black Reconstruction says there were two labor movements in the United States. One was the movement of the wage laborers, and the other was the abolitionist movement, because that was a labor movement. That was a movement for the forced laborers to have their freedom. And uh, they, the, the two labor movements didn't come together. And that was the great failure in American history. And so um, this is a, that's an important point. Um, and there are all kinds, uh, you know, that coming closer to the present, the other reason why class dropped out, of course, is just uh, ex McCarthyism is the illustration. Everything that went from the, you know, early um, uh, kind of, uh, you know, around the First World War, all of the attacks on the socialists and the anarchists and uh, the attacks on unions, up through McCarthyism, up through the rest of the Cold War culture, the, the, the um, suppression, sometimes violent and sometimes more informal, of socialism and communism uh, just uh, destroyed uh, the awareness of class and the possibility of having a class politics to the point that it's still used, anti-communist rhetoric is still used against, you know, the way that, there, if you remember, there was this thing, of, you know, uh, about Bernie Sanders being accused of being sympathetic to Cuba and so on. Yeah. Well, first of all, he was right. Second, I mean, this is being used as a way to, um, it's not like his politics or anything resembling Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, but they use this to just, they use this anti-communist rhetoric still just to attack the idea that people should have health care like they do in Canada or England, you know? Right. And so that, that's, that is very important. And I think we, we need to pay very close attention to how destructive that was. And I think it has a lot of effects because um, I think another one of the effects that it has is that, you know, why do people feel such a need to have some sense of belonging? Why do they feel such a need for recognition? I think a huge part of it is that we don't have political organizations that can make people feel empowered the mm -hmm. way that, you, you know, you had um, mass communist parties and unions in Europe and the way that at certain points in history we did in the United States, because of course it's very closely related. And I talk about this in Mistaken Identity that the w one of the major forces fighting for um, uh, overcoming racial oppression in the United States was the Communist Party. Yes. Some of the first uh, 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 social gatherings that were not racially segregated were held by the communist part of the united states and that's that's an example of this so that's very important i think the destruction of organizations and so this is why i i actually um sometimes i think when there's all this rhetoric about class reductionism class first whatever sometimes it's just um an empty term of abuse people are using because they don't they they want to discredit any kind of radical politics, right. but I don't I don't think that it actually makes sense to turn around and say like well there's something there's something to it like there's something to reducing things to class. I, I for me that doesn't work for a few reasons. One reason just in continuity with what I was saying before is that what really brings people together isn't some kind of class consciousness that's already there just because they're in a class situation. Like we're just saying, most people don't have class consciousness. They have other ways of uh, identifying themselves, other ways of um, thinking about what their interests are. And that has to be produced. Class consciousness is something, you know, you're going to have to produce it. And if you just yeah. think in terms of consciousness, I think, you know, consciousness actually comes last. Uh, what comes first is organization. What comes first is empowering practices. And so if you, you know, are, are you good, in a workplace, are you going to go around telling people, well, listen, you know, I know you, you got all these things that you're concerned about, but the important thing is that, you know, you're, you're working for wages and the most important thing right, right now is the contract. Well, you know, maybe you'll convince some people. The, thing, the way that I think you will convince most people is if you have 
uh, a union organization that people want to be part of and they go and they participate and they experience solidarity and mm -hmm. if you, the union wins things for them then they develop class consciousness so that this is i have a kind of idea that politics always comes first so it's not about whether it's class or race or whatever you know politics comes first i think and that's why the, and and if you don't have that then class is you know, you're not going to have a class struggle so you need to have that i also think the united states unlike europe you know we have a very unique history first of all we were like europe a mainly white population but for every generation from 1820 to about the late 1970s if you were in a family headed by a white male or you were a white male and the majority of people were those then every generation could do better than the last and when everyone else was decimated during world war ii all the other major economies the united states launched their anti-communist offensive to counteract the new deal and to counteract the fact that russia was the primary ally that allowed us to win world war ii and the capitalist class got nervous i mean fdr taxed them at 96.8 percent because hundreds of thousands of people were marching in the streets and many organized by the communist party so there was a real capitalist backlash and then the relative prosperity of the united states versus europe allowed the majority which were white people to feel like you can make it if you really try if you work hard that's collapsed in the united states you know people know you can work very hard and you won't make it that two people working full time at minimum wage can't afford a two bedroom apartment in any state county or city in the whole united states working hard doesn't mean much anymore you have to have opportunities and of course someone like Trump, I mean, he got somewhere, but he did get 214 million from dad. So that there's an awareness that that American dream is dead. That was possible for whites from 1820 to the mid to late 70s. And so people are ready to see class now because they know they won't get ahead as individuals anymore. That's another thing, American exceptionalism fit into our lack of class consciousness and now we're not an exception and the mass of people are deprived and you can't get ahead just because you really try and you're white and male big changes here which is why i think it's one of the reasons why people are beginning to get the idea why after 2011 the one percent 99 percent caught on everywhere there's been a transformation and America's empire is in decline and people understand somewhere we're not going to get ahead individually. That's a huge change. Um, I just, I have to jump in to say, I have a thing in 10 minutes that I have to use this zoom account for okay. curious Assad, if either you want to maybe just respond to that and, or, I don't know, plug any any of your recent writings or work that you're up to that you might we might throw into the uh, episode description or just for listeners to know about. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what what I said um, earlier about the way that I think that we have to put politics first so that then we can turn class into a political category. Um, that's that was a big um conclusion that came out of the debates around my book because i realized you know a lot of people said to me well what is it what is the relationship between race and class what's the big theory and i said okay well look we can have all kinds like i presented some uh um uh, presented some of the history i presented some cases um i i don't think that we can come up with one general theory but the reason i think people want that is they want some kind of guarantee for what their politics should be so people come up with all kinds of terminology you have people now talking about racial capitalism and things like that 
And, you know, it's because people have some kind of intuition, they're against racism, they're against capitalism. So if you have a social analysis that shows how they're really the same thing and, and so on, that that will give you a guarantee for your politics. But I, I came to think that actually we, 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 we need to turn that around and say, first, we believe in a politics of universal emancipation. Mm. And then the social analysis comes because then you figure out how, what do you need to do to make that happen. And um, the problem, and I alluded to this about the destruction of organizations, I think the problem is that we actually, at the same time that we do have this disillusionment, this uh, with, with American exceptionalism, this you know totally changed situation. That's that's uh, that's very clear. I think we also have this larger kind of what I what I what I want to call depoliticization. So I've been writing on that theme since then. So you can find some articles I've written recently. I mean, maybe you can put them in your show notes. I'll send them to you. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, that's that's what I'm uh, thinking about and working on now. That's I, important work. Yeah, I want to, I may have actually like skimmed something like that, Some something on the word depoliticization being in mm -hmm. something you wrote. Is it like N plus one, maybe? No, it's and, just anyway. on viewpoint. Oh, oh, okay, okay, yeah. Well, um, well, like let's um, let's get a couple of links from you off when we when we sign off. But um, yeah, I, I wish I wish we could go longer. This is uh, this has been such a great conversation, Assad. Um, Very important. Just really appreciate your your brain on these topics. Um, yeah. yeah, great talking, yeah. great Thank conversation. You. Thanks to you both. Thank yeah, you. Of course. Okay. Okay. Thanks to All our right. Patreon listeners who allow oh, yeah. us to survive here. Yeah, um, yeah, and if anybody wants to contact us about if you have like you know feedback or thoughts or reactions or whatever, just email us at it's not just in your head at gmail dot com. Uh, like if there's something you wanted to say to Assad, send it to us. We could forward to him. Um, if you want to support the show, you can become a patron and get like early access and other perks. We're having a monthly reading club now as well. So just go to uh, it's not just or no Patreon dot com. Uh, slash it's not just in your head. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. Capitalism Hits Home is a sort of broader overhead view. It explores the way that capitalism shapes our personal lives, our psyches, our relationships, our families, and it looks particularly at the sea change in American personal life as all Americans, but the top 10 or 20 percent of Americans, have our security and our chance for a future become as precarious as it always was for minorities and families headed by women. It's not just in your head and capitalism hits home are definitely complimentary. And if listeners would like to check out Capitalism Hits Home, Harriet, where should they go to find it? Either on YouTube or Democracy at Work or on my own website, harrietfraud.com.